Welcome aboard the Shipshape Podcast, your ultimate destination for marine wisdom and expertise. Our skilled crew, comprised of top boating journalists and experts, is committed to delivering informative and captivating content week after week. We're eager to connect with and learn from our fellow mariners, and we encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. Remember, word of mouth is our lifeblood, and if you enjoy an episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, you're helping us forge a robust community of mariners who can learn, collaborate, and exchange their experiences out on the water. Welcome to the Ship Shape Podcast. Today, we're charting a course with Josh Neese. From his early days in sales to pivotal roles as the fishery biologist in Louisiana, Josh has navigated diverse waters. His experience in governmental positions have honed his perspectives, leading him to the helm of his current venture, the Florida Oyster Trading Company, pushing the boundaries of sustainable oyster farming. Join us as we dive deep into Josh's journey and the ripples he's creating in today's oyster industry. Your two co-hosts today are Meryl Shred. I'm a liveboard on a Toshing Toshiba 36 in Boston, Massachusetts, and T. Hey guys, welcome to the Ship Shape Podcast. Talabhati here, and today we have Josh in the house with us, and he's going to tell us about oyster farming in the South. So welcome to the show, Josh. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So Josh, where are you coming to us from? I am in Pensacola, Florida. Nice. What's the weather there like? Uh, still hot. Still hot. Still hot. Yeah. Yeah. If it gets into the 80s, we're uh, we're considering that fall. So uh, still pretty warm, considering. Nice. And oh. I know in Virginia and in the north, we just uh, were you know, reeling from some storms. How'd you guys fare? Uh, we uh, being in Pensacola, we were we were a good ways away. We were on the weak side of uh, Adalia, and uh, but. You know, our, our fellow growers in the Cedar Key area didn't fare so well. We not really hear any any totals or, you know, results of it. But uh, that, was, that was a pretty pretty strong storm with the uh, Gulf waters being so warm. So before we get into aquaculture, let's hear how you actually got into this industry. And um, from your bio, you weren't always in biology and aquaculture you were in sales so how did you go from sales to aquaculture well probably back it up a little further is how i got into sales in school i was having a really good time just uh playing baseball and hanging out with my uh, wife and uh probably didn't pay as much attention to my career track at the time as i should have so uh as most of us former athletes do, we kind of just gravitate towards sales and um, landed a great position with a great Fortune 500 company. And, um, you know, it was a great experience, but it just didn't speak to me. So uh, over time, you know, kind of looking for that passion of something, you know, it makes me jump out of bed in the morning, get rolling. I kind of landed in biology. Even then, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. You know, it, at the time, it was, well, you, you go to school, you get a degree, and you go find a, you know, government position to work for, and you put your time in, whatever it is, 20, 25 years, and you retire. That's pretty much it. But, um, you know, it, it all kind of happened. I hate to say haphazardly, but that's how I got to this point. Uh, my first, what I call my, my first big boy job out of uh, school was with uh, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, which was wonderful experience and actually 
my introduction to oyster aquaculture. And then um, from there, as a biologist, I, I was given the opportunity to be a hatchery manager for the state of Alabama at a finfish hatchery, huge, 25,000 square foot facility in Gulf Shores, Alabama, where we uh, we produced uh, red drum, Florida pompano, and uh, we just started working on Southern flounder before I'd left. And then into the private world in a commercial uh, industry, I really enjoyed oyster aquaculture because it's a very straightforward process in comparison to, to finfish. And, um, you know, it, it was an opportunity to kind of combine both careers, both the, the business aspect as well as the biological aspect. And uh, once I got a taste for it, there was no looking back, really. And, um, of course, COVID happened while I was at my last, you know, quote unquote job. And um, that was an opportunity to go out on my own and, you know, establish Ford Oyster Trading Company and, and kind of... Um, look at the industry from a different standpoint, really. You know, it's an interesting change from doing sales to deciding to actually go back to school and learn all this. And I would love to kind of hear a little bit more of that thought process. And uh, really, you know, besides the waking up in the morning and having a passion for something, what was that like? How difficult was it? Really what difficult because, I mean, it, it, it was something, you know, it was something exciting and, and it was something different. And, you know, again, it, to my detriment, I, I kind of floated through uh, college the first go around, uh, academically speaking. And, you know, uh, this was an opportunity to kind of make amends with that from the, the academic standpoint. Now, one of the deciding factors was actually, OK, if I go into marine biology, I mean, it's kind of hard to do that you know, in the mountains or in the Midwest or so I've always been a beach person. I've always loved the water and loved fishing. So that was a way to, to kind of anchor me to the coast, really. The process, again, it, it's just, it, it kind of just fell into place. You know, my thought process was, okay, since I already have a bachelor's and I studied communications the first go around and, um, you know, I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll just go to grad school. Well, my two piddly biology classes didn't quite cut it. So I had to take some more uh, undergrad and found out that I would be able to just knock out a second bachelor's in the same time frame that it would take to take the five or six courses to qualify for grad school, which thankfully it worked out because I, you know, a lot of great instructors, a lot of great content in those additional classes. So it was really beneficial. And then, um, you know, landed, uh, landed a, in a wonderful, wonderful, uh, grad lab where, uh, we studied, uh, reef fish ecology and, uh, aquaculture and, so uh, it, it's funny how things just kind of fall in place when you when you look at it from a real just organic standpoint. Mm. So tell us a little bit about because you you obviously you worked for yourself, you worked for the government, you worked for other companies. Like tell us about those different roles and perhaps which ones resonated with you the most and why. Well, I think I feel like they all served a purpose. Um, you know, obviously, you know where I am now establishing a company and, and launching a company in this past year with production. The autonomy speaks to me. I love, you know, having the freedom to, to do as I please and, and the way I see fit. But, you know, obviously there's a certain bit of risk involved with that. So it's, it's exciting. Um, you know, I compare my time with this two, the two state agencies as almost military training for, you know, and then retiring from the military and, and becoming a uh, local law enforcement. It's like, uh, you know, I was well, I was well prepared 
fly you to a class, you know, out in California for, you know, learning how to grow algae. It's really, really beneficial in that regard, but it's very structured as well. So, you know, in every case, there's been a, there's been a trade-off and, you know, going back to my sales, you know, one thing that, that I've done in, in launching the Florida's training company is consulting to kind of cash flow the operations and just getting everything off the ground. So um, the sales in in the welding supply industry actually served me pretty well when it came to you know consulting or representing uh, partners in the U.S. and all the various roles that I've picked up in the past few years. Nice. What what sort of consulting was this? Uh, well, I've I've actually worked with individual growers as well as there is a tech firm in Australia that I represent in the U.S. Here, it's an inventory management platform. The, uh, the company is Ocean Farmer, you know, just great group of individuals, very innovative product that was born from a grower to answer grower issues it was an easy sell and something I believed in. So uh, I've worked with them for three years now and, um, you know, uh, just partners along the way. And even those partnerships and, and relationships have kind of led to the formation of uh, what I think a lot of people are trying to do across the country is, is you know, the cluster model, bringing the industry and vendors and trying to, you know, stabilize supply chain and so on and so forth. You know, that's kind of where that concept originated as well. It's like, why aren't we bringing these people together? So like I said, it's funny. It's, it's all just kind of, it kind of falls into place. Mm. And so before we deep dive into some of the aquaculture stuff, I have a question about sales. You said something interesting right now. You said that you believed in the product. How important as for a salesman is it to believe in the product they're selling? Well, I, I think it's pretty instrumental in, in your success. I mean, if you if you believe in what you're representing, then it makes your job easier and uh, you're more passionate. And, you know, I'll take it even further. You know, if you're a user of the product, it just makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, I've, I've I don't think I would want to or agree to represent anything I didn't fully believe in or want to use myself. So blue economy, right? New term that's come out, right? It's becoming very prevalent. You're seeing groups start up all over the place. And uh, a lot of it has to come down to aquaculture. So can you talk about where aquaculture is presently at? Obviously, you've been in it for a while. So can you explain maybe how it's evolved over time? Is it becoming much more prevalent in today's dialogue? Well, speaking from an oyster aquaculture standpoint, over the past you know decade plus, oysters have become a hot button issue. And the fact that it's just universally accepted that global populations, not just isolated in, in, in a state or an estuary, global oyster populations are gone. And, you know, we're talking 80, 90 percent loss. And that, you know, being that oysters are, you know, fancy another buzzword, keystone species, you know, it's not just food production. It's not just protein for a growing population. With the loss of those wild populations are also the loss of their ecosystem services. And so I look at oyster aquaculture as a, a vehicle to address not only, you know, food production and, you know, just one of those tasty treats that people love to enjoy, but also it serves an environmental purpose, even in aquaculture. 
oysters, you know, they're filter feeders. Growing them is a no-put method, uh, meaning they're extracting nutrients and, and algae from the water, clearing it. So in terms of blue economy, there's this ripple effect. You know, I mean, to me, I think having a pristine bay with, with high water quality and, you know, a thriving, you know, nursery for the sport fish, it reaches into the local communities. And that affects everything from tourism to how many people are moving to the town, property values, so on and so forth. So it's, it's I'm not an economist, so I can't put figures to this. To me, it's just kind of drawing conclusions between A, B, and C. And that's why oysters, to me, go beyond just hey, you know, we make really great oysters by our oysters. It, it, it goes beyond that to the ecology, the economics. And I would even go so far as to say the social aspect. You know, there's an opportunity for people to get into being an entrepreneur and working on their own. I mean, you know, obviously job creation, when those businesses are started, you, you got to hire people. So there's a great opportunity to touch so many different facets that's another reason I, I just absolutely love oyster aquaculture. Why hmm. are all the wild oysters dead in the first place? Hmm. What killed them? What happened? I mean, there's no magic bullet. I think it's a combination of, of several things. At the end of the day, anthropogenic effects. I mean, what we're doing as, as humans and, and development, and, uh, not here to point fingers at anyone. It's just, it's a fact of life that they're, they've disappeared and People that are much smarter than I am with PhDs and so on and so forth that uh, that are working on solving that issue. We have an interesting take on restoration that goes beyond just the water quality contributions that the oyster aquaculture industry offers. You know, there, there's ways to go about actually putting oysters back in the water effectively and efficiently and, and even on a budget because there is... A lot of money given, you know, here on the Gulf with the Deepwater Horizon oil spill that occurred some almost 15 years ago, 14 years ago. There's pockets of money earmarked for restoration. And one of my pet peeves is how's it being spent? Is it going to groups that are actionable or are these funds going to groups that that aren't exactly producing results? So the ecology aspect is just as important to me as it is with the, the food production. Yeah, well, you certainly see uh, a lot of those issues coming up, you know, because of how fast these blue economy groups are appearing. And if you look at a lot of these blue economy groups, a good chunk of them have actually no experience in marine in the first place, which is quite a challenge when you're trying to come up with solutions for marine. So can you talk about kind of collaboration within this space? Yeah, we we're we're fortunate enough. We're in a we're in a good place that we don't have to drink from every cup that's offered from us. So we can be selective in partnerships and you know aligned visions of of who we want to work with and in what capacity. A lot of upstart companies aren't as fortunate. You know, they oh, there's a new group. They've got so many thousands of Facebook followers or, or what have you, I need to hitch my wagon to that star. So yeah, there, there's potential bad actors in the group, just like anyone, any industry. You know, I like to think that uh, most people have the greater good at heart. And those are the ones that we uh, hope to identify and, and partner with if we haven't already. Mm. 
And so I almost see this going down two ways in, in terms of the oyster growth. One is, like you said, for restoration purposes, I imagine you can't eat those anymore, right? And then there are the other ones that you actually cultivate for farming and feeding people. Which ones are you guys more invested in, or is it both of them? Well, ultimately, we'll be you know highly invested in both. Right now, our primary focus is launching uh, farm operations for human consumption. But you know, in the interim, we we've been laying the foundation for future projects because Florida is highly regulated in terms of aquaculture restoration. Anything to do with water, Florida is, Florida is very highly re- regulated, and that's not a bad thing. I, I think it's an advantage to us all because it allows less room for shenanigans. You know, I mean, if you have a, a group in, in a state that doesn't even have a division of aquaculture, I think that there's less trust there. And and Florida, you know, it's it's common knowledge we are we are very highly regulated. But uh, to answer your question in terms of the restoration, you know, laying that foundation now is important for what we do in a few years. We've got to, we've got to gain that traction and, and work on, you know, the permitting because some of the things we want to do haven't been done before. And, um, you know, we want to break the mold of, what do they say, uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. We want to look at things a little differently. And um, so in doing so and, and being above board requires time. So that's, that's one of the things we're kind of working on the admin aspect of it right now. Hmm. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about what you just hit upon. Is it doing things new, and maybe even like sandwich that in with just like what's a typical day in Josh's life right now managing this uh, Florida oyster company? <laughs> well, with the launch of, of production this past year, there's a lot of lab time. So the Florida Oyster Trading Company is a multi-site, vertically integrated model, and meaning we produce our own seed from local brood stock. Everything is in-house. The seed then goes to our farm, which to me maximizes not only the estuarine benefits of having oysters in-house their entire life, but it also speaks to, you know, keeping monies locally as well as the quality of the end product. If you have oysters that have been transferred between here and there and wherever and they're going from an estuary with high salinity to an estuary with low salinity to impact it creates stress and i feel like you know animals that are naturally grown in a, a certain estuary and they remain there are less stressed therefore you're seeing a higher quality product so there is a lot of time dedicated towards the actual operations boots on the ground and then you know obviously working on uh with our consulting partners and uh, just the admin as well. So there, there's a lot of hats being worn on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, the great thing is no two days really look alike. Take this morning, for instance, I don't, I don't really do a whole lot of podcasts. So this is a, uh, this is a fun uh, new experience for me right here. Sweet. So can you talk about a little bit more detail about what differentiates Florida oyster trading companies approach from traditional seed production methods? Sure. So it really begins with the uh, microhatchery, you know, having experience in both state and private. Just what is yeah. microhatchery? Elaborate a little there as well. Yeah, that's our name for our seed production. It's, it's actually patent pending and it's based on the traditional model, which I would call an academic model based on, you know, having 
the infrastructure at hand and, you know, labor through internships or graduate students, it's not necessarily an apples to apples transition. So what it is, is actually taking the the traditional academic model and retrofitting it for efficient commercial production. So microhatchery is stripped down. Uh, It's used when needed with low overhead in terms of power, labor, all that fun stuff. So it makes seed production and vertically integrating more accessible to the commercial market. So that is where I was for the most of the summer is actually producing seed for our leases in the microhatchery. And I'm sure we'll talk about economics here in a bit, but, you know, oyster aquaculture in comparison to traditional wild harvesting is very capital intensive. You, you have to, you know, have that capital expenditures up front in terms of gear. If you're going to produce seed, you know, building out a, a, a hatchery and cash flowing all this until you're revenue positive. You know, here on the Gulf, we, we're fortunate with really quick uh, grow out times. Always follow that with, you know, we kind of have to with, with the tropical storm activity that we see. But, you know, as you get into the North, there's there's more prolonged grow out periods. So even though we have quicker turnaround in terms of harvest, you know, there's still that, that pre-revenue phase that people have to, you know, float their operation, cash flow their operation. So, you know, financing is a, it's a, it's a barrier. It's a barrier. You know, we overcame it through, you know, consulting, cash flowing there. We, we have a, a wonderful partner, uh, Steward, who is a, a financing group that accesses capital for farms, whether it be terrestrial or marine. And uh, they actually funded the uh, first micro hatchery and just recently helped us close out our first round of the raised with uh, purchasing gear. So uh, very, very fortunate to have Stuart uh, as a partner, but you know, not everyone knows about them or applies or, or what have you. So you have, you know, more traditional methods with, you know, I'm a mortgage my house or, you know, I'm, a, I'm just going to dig into savings and all those little tidbits kind of, limit scale, right? I mean, because it's it's a risk. You don't want to overextend yourself. At the end of the day, we're, we're dealing with nature. And you might be able to do everything right, everything perfectly, have all the tools. But then um, hurricane rolls through or uh, midsummer mortalities have been an issue on the Atlantic, Southeast Atlantic, as well as in the Gulf. So there's, there's things that are out of your control that you can only attempt to mitigate. But, you know, there's a lot left to, to deal with that you can't control. I still want a clearer sense of the process. So tell us how the micro hatcheries work and like just what the process is from like seed to harvest. Yeah. Sure. How do oysters reproduce anyway? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I told myself I wasn't going to get into this, but I'll, I'll, as long as we can, as long as we can talk about sperm and eggs. Um, so, what what we do in the micro hatchery is we we sort we we sustainably source brood stock, which are the parents. We'll collect uh, you know a handful of those, bring them into the lab, and then we spawn them. And, and spawning consists of identifying the males and the females, which is done so with a sample uh, from the gonads. Uh, we open them up, scalpel, and and look at a, at a sample under a microscope, and you'll you'll see. 
eggs, eggs or sperm. We'll separate those. The eggs are then uh, stripped and consolidated into a beaker. The sperm is done so as well. We typically want more females, females, you know, a little larger in size. You know, you need, you need the eggs for the, the volume, the production volume. And then because a lot of a little bit of sperm goes a long way. But to answer your question, in nature, how they spawn, they release the, the gametes into the water column. and It mixes and they fertilize in the water column. So once this fertilization occurs, whether it be in a lab or in the wild, the oyster is actually a swimming larvae for approximately two weeks. And that's something a lot of people don't really realize. They're, they're swimming around, they're filter feeding. After the first, you know, I'd say two days, they really resemble a miniature oyster under the microscope. And in terms of, you know, size, you know, we're talking about a fertilized egg being anywhere between 20 to 40 micrometers or microns, which is small. <laughs> it's, you know, fractions uh, of a millimeter. And then as they, as they develop in the larval stage, they'll grow to be about a quarter of a millimeter. And at that point in time, you can kind of see them with the naked eye, especially like, say, like in a white bucket or beaker. It kind of looks like, uh, I don't know, finely ground pepper. They'll have a little black color to them. And at that point in time, once they reach that, that you know, 225, 250 micrometers, that's when they actually begin extending a foot and searching for suitable substrate to affix to and uh in the lab that occurs you know in the setting tank hopefully they they'll, they'll actually sit on the bucket on the side of the tank when they're ready they're ready but um we'll put them in a set, uh, setting tank which each silo will uh contain microculch just finely ground shell and uh they'll attach to a single piece as long as it's uh sized properly and uh, that's how we get single shells for the market. At that point in time, once they've set and fixed themselves to the culch, they just grow. They grow. They grade out at 300 micrometers. And then uh, we move them out to the lease at uh, anywhere from uh, two millimeters to six millimeters. And uh, this process takes anywhere, depending on the time of the year, four, four to eight weeks. Warmer temperatures, the higher metabolism, the more food availability, the quicker they grow. So um, they'll grow a little slower in the colder months in our, in our frigid, frigid Florida winters. And all this, all this kind of takes place, you know, beginning in spring and then throughout the year as they uh, as they kind of spawn out and uh, you know use their use their reserves. Hmm. How many seasons do you guys get? Or is it just one crop? No, they're batch spawners. One female. I mean, never really counted but you know they, they say one female can produce up to 10 million eggs in one spawn so they'll spawn every every wow. so often depending on um you know depending on the, the the environmental cues and the triggers oysters you know since they are affixed to substrate be that you know a reef or a seawall or a pylon or a shoe or whatever you know since they can't move they they cue off of one another so if you know one begins to release sperm they'll all trigger to uh, maximize that uh, that reproduction to where we're not wasting resources. Uh, so it's really, really cool how they, uh, how they do that. Well, for how much sperm and eggs are going into the water and how often it happens, you know, you'd think that there would be a thriving, wild, you know, oyster thing going on. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, given given all the the events over the past years, you know, I mean, I think we've actually dropped below a threshold of of being you know being able to maintain a, a thriving population. You know, and that has to do with just population numbers as well as suitable substrate. You know, some substrate gets buried over time through through silting or developing a wetlands, kind of changing the estuary. So there, there's a lot of factors at play. But yeah, you would think so. I mean, there's such a such a high volume, but but also, you know, just like you know, marine fish and anything kind of happen in an open system, you have very, very low success rates. I mean, point I don't know how many zeros one survival from those, you know, millions of eggs that go into the water column. So it's really a numbers game where you, they're kind of hedging their bets and saying, hey, we're not going to have high success. So we better have a whole lot of n- numbers out there. But yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of, lot of factors at play. And, you know, that, that kind of speaking to the restoration aspect, you know, that's why we kind of need to look at it a little differently. You know, going and just dumping rocks out the bay, crossing our fingers, hoping natural recruitment occurs isn't exactly the most proactive Sometimes it's what's needed. Maybe there is natural recruitment occurring and they just don't have anywhere to, to set. Or, you know, maybe there's not. Maybe we need to maybe we need to be a little more proactive and put, uh, you know, biological mass out into the estuary along with substrate. So, you know, there, there's no one quick and easy answer. And uh, how have you seen kind of the, the global market of oysters consumption over the years is it an increasing type deal or is it kind of always stagnant or what's that look like i I feel like you know the oysters the consumption has always been there i feel like it's been a transition however with the demand just outstripping supply so vastly oysters have gone from you want to say you know 125 years ago you know being a penny on a streetcar to, you know, more of a Sunday afternoon, happy hour, quarter, 50 cent each, you know, you drinking beer, watching the game to now it's more of a table, white tablecloth uh, type delicacy almost because, you know, with the decline in the natural populations, I mean, it's almost necessary that oyster aquaculture supplant that loss of production on the East coast. I I joke and, and say, you know, they're, they're, you know, easily a decade plus ahead of us on the Gulf, just, you know, due to the sheer experience, because the Gulf is, we're burgeoning in very, very early stages of the industry. And uh, so there's a lot of growing pains because compare East Coast to Gulf and West Coast, I mean, you know, it's not anywhere near the same situation. I mean, I'd go so far to say every estuary is different. And, And, you know, I've seen examples of where, just based off the hydrology of a base system, you can have a different product on one end than the other. So, you know, to me, an oyster is not an oyster is not an oyster. It's, 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 they're all different products because they are filter feeders and they are products of the, of the environment. You know, that, that's one reason we've, you know, chosen our, our various locations. We want to tie into, you know, the various eco brands of oysters, you know, based off of you know, salinity and the algal profiles of these estuaries. I mean, they're different products. So, you know, being able to offer that is uh, something we wanted to do where it's not just a single source, single source uh, product harvest. Mm. So, so it sounds like there's lots of opportunity all over the place. What sort of advice would you give to you know some of the youth trying to get into this field? Where, where should they even start? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think there's one way. I, I feel like if just like anything, if you're interested in something, just get involved, jump in. I mean, it's not a it's not a situation where oh, you have to have a degree to do this. I mean, I know several folks that have just transitioned mid-career out of a lot of different vocations and, and gotten into it just because they want to work on a lot or they want to work with their hands. They want to, you know, dictate their own work schedule. There's always the, I love oysters. I, I miss them. I want to contribute to, you know, the, the estuary. I want to, I want to build my business around that. So I would say jump in, find someone who's actively doing it. Because based on my experience, and, and this goes back to, to working with uh, state agencies, you know, finding out you don't want to do something is just as important as finding out that you love it. And uh, I've seen, you know, younger you know, college students and thinking, yeah, I'm a, you know, I want to get in marine biology. And, you know, I think a lot of people have the idea of want to play with Flipper and, you know, oh, I'm going to work with sharks or this and that. And they found out. It's a lot of tank cleaning. It's 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 dirty work, you know, and you don't get to wear the the highest SPF or mosquito repellent or whatever because it might be sensitive to what you're doing. And so just dive in, dive in. And if it's something that's attractive, you know, there, there are resources. That's something we're looking to do is building a, a pipeline, not only for labor of the established industry, but also you know, a pipeline of people looking to get in to gain that experience, whether it be, you know what, I just want to work on the water. I just want to be a, I just want to be a tech or, you know, I, I want to manage a farm or I want to own a farm or I also throw in the fact that people on an academic track, I think it's valuable that they gain experience in, in the industry or any, any commercial industry adjacent to their field because they'll have that experience to fall back on. And then as they're producing their own research and, you know, they're a PI on a major grant, they'll remember, okay, you know, it's industry driven. It's, it's, it's not, you know, let's see how pretty we can make this or could we change the color on that? Or it's actually industry driven research. So I feel like that's as valuable as, as, as um, you know, someone who actually wants to get in and do the work. Ahoy investors. Are you on the lookout for a unique opportunity to invest in a thriving industry? Set your sights on ShipShape, the innovative platform connecting boat and yacht owners with top-notch marine service providers. Our team is committed to revolutionizing the marine repair and refit market in North America. But we can't sail these seas alone. With your support, we can enhance our platform and create a significant impact in the industry. Don't let this exciting investment opportunity drift away. Contact us today to learn more about joining our voyage. Reach out to us at info at shipshape.pro. I'm interested in, in hearing kind of the, the difference between, you know, the, the New England oysters and the, the Florida oysters in terms of what issues and unique challenges are faced, right? Because... We have done an interview with Jordy St. John, who owns Merritt Island Oysters, who gave it, you know, an interesting take on things. But I like to think that Florida is known for its hurricanes and uh, hot waters. So what unique challenges are faced? And are there different species, literally, north and south? Well, West Coast is, is different species. But yeah, every, all the way from Mexico up to, up to Canada is all the eastern oyster, Crustacea virginica. And... Um, as a one-to-one 
comparison. I'd be kind of pressed to, to sit there and say A, B, and C, because again, to me, they're estuary dependent. And, you know, you might have two Northeastern or two Gulf oysters from different estuaries that, that might be drastically different. With the warmer waters, there, there's a give and take. I mean, the give is, you know, we have exceptional grow out times, which is, which is wonderful. The take is kind of twofold. One, the, uh, the storms obviously are a liability, but the implication that, you know, oh, it's warmer water, so it's more, you know, bacteria, what have you, you know, kind of going back to, you know, the state of Florida and the hot regulation, that should be a minimal concern, to be honest. I mean, just because it's so highly regulated. Now, I mean, is there an off chance that something can fall through the cracks? Absolutely. Um, there's, there's no foolproof way, but due to the traceability and folks, like us that, that want to add to that traceability, whether it be utilizing local genetics or just, you know, a higher level of, you know, transparency and tracking of, of data. You know, I, I feel like that concern is mitigated. And then it comes down to also, I mean, what do you like? You know, some, some people like a certain size of moisture, or, you know, so, you know, you have the individual, I guess, subjective, you know, characteristics of what people like as well. So, but to talk about the main issue, you know, storms kind of goes back to, you know, workforce development. I recently gave a, gave a soundbite to um, We Are Aquaculture for, for a, an article on Adalia, and um, you got to have the hands. I mean, you can have a 300-page business plan with, you know, 20 pages of storm preparedness, SOPs, but it, you don't have the people to execute it before and after it's kind of useless, you know? So it comes back to, you know, workforce development and creating that talent pipeline to, to supplement and scale the industry as a whole. It doesn't come down to, Oh, well we have two new farmhands. We're going to produce more oysters. It's those mitigation practices as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'll tell people it's, it's not a question of if it's when, and that also lends itself, that thought process lends itself to why we are multi-site, you know, looking at storms and, and, the, and the history and the records of the storms that have hit the Gulf, you know, Dahlia is like one of the first ones, major storm that's hit the uh, Big Bend area, if I'm, if I'm correct. I, I, I'm, please fact check me on that. I don't want to be the authority on hurricanes, but that was my understanding. And then, you know, Michael had recently hit Apalachicola and, and, you know, Sally had hit Pensacola a few years ago. So it, it will happen. The question is, is how prepared are you? And uh, do you have the resources at hand to, uh, to properly mitigate? You know, we use some pretty rugged gear that's actually sinkable. So, you know, being able to sink your gear is, is a great storm preparedness tactic. Uh, however, it's not so easy to, to pull them up. Uh, so you, you need some hands and that it goes back to the workforce development. Mm. So and I want to just build up that a little. So with the changing climate patterns, how, how is the future of the industry looking then? I think, uh, I think we're still learning that. I don't, I don't feel like, uh, I don't feel like anyone has an answer on how and, and, and to what degree the industry will be affected. I feel like we as humans are uh, expediting the, the cyclical process, but um, I don't feel like it's anything 
unnatural, if that makes sense. I'm not belittling climate change by any means, but I feel like there is a, a natural cycle to it. And I kind of always fall back on the notion that oysters have been around for a long time. They've been, you know, naturally conditioned to withstand the seasonalities and the influxes of the seasons. So um, as long as the, as the, the change doesn't occur too rapidly, I feel like there'll be a natural response within the species to, to continue propagating and surviving. Uh, you know, oysters are a extremely hardy species and um, I couldn't be put in a cooler for a week without food or water or oxygen, you know, and survive. So, I mean, in a way they're a little hardier than I am. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the industry is gaining traction here on the Gulf. I mean, obviously it's large in the East Coast, but in terms of how climate change will affect it, I think the jury's still out. We'll just have to have to see and it be adaptable. Mm. And you sort of you hinted to this. You said that you guys were sinking equipment. Uh, just give our listeners a better idea of like under the ocean surface, like how much of a churn do these storms generate, or is it you know like untouched underneath and everything's just happening on on top of the water? Well, so here here in Pensacola, we are not allowed to grow on the bottom. We're considered Gulf sturgeon critical habitat, which is um, protected species. So we we don't grow on the bottom. Everything is in the water column. The the gear that we use, we use oyster grow. They have pontoons on the cages. So really, as simple as opening the cap and, and filling them with water to, and flipping them over to sit up above the muck. They're weighed down with the product and um, tethered, obviously, with, with the lines that that are that are attached to them. And being the fact that we're, we're not in open Gulf, we're in the base system where, you know, in terms of a, a, even if a direct hit, there's still some buffer from that raw energy, you know, inshore. So we're not taking, you know, full on force of the storm. You know, we have the barrier islands and then, of course, inshore from there. But yeah, you know, it's still there is there still is energy and, you know, you have busted pylons and during hurricane sally there were barges ping-ponging around the uh around the bay so that that actually caused more destruction than i believe the natural uh energy again don't quote me on that because i do not want to get tied up in that mess but um yeah you know there's a lot of factors at play but yeah i mean again it's mitigating it's not it's not bulletproof you know so uh anytime you're dealing with you know farming again terrestrial or, or marine you're dealing with those components. So if a person is trying to start a oyster farm, right, they would contact Florida Oyster Trading Company. And basically you would not only supply them seed, but you could also supply them with guidance. How many oyster growers are there presently in your area? And kind of how do you envision the future of that? How difficult is it to find a location in the first place? Well, the permitting process is probably the initial and i hate to say barrier because it's not it, it doesn't prohibit you from getting started it's just it adds to that startup time you know a proposed site you know can take anywhere from you know six to twelve months you know i mean that's getting everything right out of the box with you know your application and the site they'll do an in-person review looking at the site to ensure there's no seagrass or you know current beds or historical beds there 
and then uh, you'll you'll have a survey company come out and, and map it, and then uh, goes before uh, the governor's cabinet for final approval after public comment. So there's, it's it's a process to get started. Then um, so that's the permitting aspect, and then you know obviously there's seed needs throughout the Gulf, and and you know we're looking to answer that from from a local standpoint. But back to the financial aspect, having the gear to farm it and then be able to float that financially until, you know, you have crop coming to harvest is a, is a limiting factor as well. So it's not impossible, nor is it easy. I feel there, you know, there, there's opportunities to make the process a little easier. And that's what we want to do with the oyster cluster model and, you know, be able to um, assist with those, including with the labor and, you know, the, the subsequent marketing that the opportunities that would present itself with, Oh, hey, these guys, you know, they're, they're, they're doing it this way. They're, they're producing a good product. Um, these guys are doing it as well. So kind of almost uh, compartmentalizing those together. But yeah, I mean, eventually, if the need is there in other areas, we, we'd be more than happy to, uh, to franchise the model to where that company is vertically integrated and operating on their own. So there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity in getting folks started. And of course, you know, state and, and academic institutions have provided research and material and classes to help help folks as well. Mm. So, Josh, so we we've been skirting around this for a while. Tell us a little bit more about the economics of all of this. The economics in getting started. In getting started, even where you guys are, you guys are further along. How is sort of funding looking for you guys? Do you have investors? Like, how does one find people like that? Are people interested in investing in it? Yeah, so um, that that is that is one of the areas that I uh, previously did not have experience in. Is you know fundraising. Uh, we we have a an amazing partner, Riv Capital LP, based out of Brooklyn. They're our lead equity partner. We do have a, a great foundation of early investors. That's honestly what's gotten us to this point in combination with with Stewart. And uh, so, yeah, we, we do have traction. You know, I always say, you know, it's not if we're going to launch, it's it's or when we're going to launch, it's, it's, you know, how quickly the process is expedited. And that's how I see um, the capital raise as almost accelerating the process of, you know, let's build out that finish building out that first site, it reaching max production capacity, and then let's focusing on these other two sites. And then beyond that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll begin sourcing additional sites. So, you know, we have a, we have a, you know, pretty grand plan for the next five to 10 years, which will involve outside funding. So, uh, you know, Lon Olivier with uh, Riff Capital, he's been an amazing partner with, with helping us. We, we we're doing this through limited partnership shares and green bonds. So that is our, our primary focus. And we actually even started mm, what, what's a green bond. So it's, it's a, it's a convertible note, right? It's, it's almost uh, like debt. So a limited partnership share is a straightforward equity share of the company. A green bond is a debt note that actually sees a return after the initial uh, seven months, but uh, after six years can be, converted to a share probably should have brought lionel on to, to answer these questions uh, i hope i'm hope i'm hitting all the right points but yeah so it, it's a debt note to an individual and of course we're, we're also looking you know in search of the right equity partners as well be that you know impact or angel um 
if we're not too far down the road for, for that with, uh, with, with the production already being launched. So uh, we're, we're, we're attacking it from um, several different angles, kind of refer to it as uh, three yards in a cloud of dust. I feel like once we have those sales projections based off of the inventory that we, we've been and are currently producing, we'll, we'll start seeing that uh, raise snowball. And um, we're really focused on um, the early investors seeing their return, uh, most importantly, because of how appreciative we are with, with their belief uh, early on when this was you know concept. So uh, very, very grateful for, uh, for, for our early investors, definitely. I tell you, what you should do is just go up to every single oyster bar that's in all of Florida, give them a QR code with a sign that says, you want to have oysters for your children, you know, and do a giant crowdfunding campaign. There you go. Yeah, that, that, that sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I might, I might have to steal that idea. <laughs> so cool. So as, as we get to the end of the interview, Josh, um, any words of advice for you know, people trying to get into this industry or, you know, just like even our listeners in general, just how important this is to our future as a whole. Yeah. I mean, it, there, there's a certain aspect of, you know, romanticism to it for me. You know, I mean, there's that whole Hemingway working on the water with your hands and, you know, creating something that, you know, can be enjoyed by others. But, you know, it's not easy. And, uh, you know, it's got to go past the romanticism aspect of something you really want to be involved in because there's, you know, just like any startup. I mean, there's, there's, there's high points and low points and, you know, being able to be able to stand the, the pressures and not just, you know, financial and, and production, but environmental pressures that a lot of, a lot of companies may or may not have to deal with. So yeah, perseverance and uh, a little grit go a long ways. And uh, so Find out if that's uh, something you're interested in because it, it, it's almost guaranteed to uh, to be necessary. Nice. And you would recommend this, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, any day of the week, you're like, do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, we're doing it, right. So, I mean, it'd be kind of weird if I was like, yeah, I wouldn't suggest anyone get into this. No, no, I think I think it's totally accomplishable. But I mean, again, you know, the right mindset. You know, I tell people all the time. I, I think you know, you, you typically don't see folks who played sports or, or what have you get into biology and and i but i feel like it's a really perfect fit because i mean you're you're at practice every day you're doing the same thing every day you're building that muscle memory and that's kind of along the lines of farming i mean you, you have that same mentality of creating a system and, and working the system and and until you get your final results so don't look at it as you know oh, i don't want to study biology because that's what I mean, I'm a nerd, so I'll, I'll say it. I mean, you know, that's, that's what it's nerdy or what have you. I personally like being a nerd, but also, you know, there, there's some physicality to it. And um, I feel like it's for all ways, shapes and forms. And going back to, you know, the workforce development, you know, that's a need that's been told to us by the industry. And, you know, after digging into it, it's like, you know, you look at oyster aquaculture and, I mean, it's predominantly white male. And it's, you know, my first question is, are we, are we reaching all communities? Are we reaching all demographics? And, you know, a lot of the time it's no. I mean, just like when I started my journey with, uh, into biology, I didn't really necessarily know a whole lot about oyster aquaculture and what it was about. So how did I know if it was an option for a career? 
So I feel like, you know, to help answer the labor needs and to scale the industry by providing those economic opportunities, we need to reach out to everyone. So I feel like in addition to the environmental and, and the food and the, and the economic boost that this industry can offer, there's also a social component. You know, offering opportunities or, or exposing folks to opportunities that, that may have previously not known about it or not been directly approached will, will serve the greater good. And I, I feel like, you know, that that's one of the missions of the Workforce Development Program is to reach folks in underserved communities that might need that that economic opportunity. It, it's just widespread and, and there's so many ways to contribute to the community, your local community. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful industry. I, I would definitely, if it suits your disposition, get into it. As uh, we come to our conclusion here and before we ask you where people can find you, at what point in someone's journey should they reach out to you for advice or support or help? Uh, there's no particular time. I mean, there's, you know, um, we're here. Like I said, I've worked with individual growers who are established. I've worked with, you know, individuals who are interested in getting into the industry. And then through just outreach and marketing, the younger generation, you know, because it's never too early, never too early to, to, to make decisions and expose yourself to, to, to various opportunities. So, um, yeah, there's no, there's no one point in time. Well, personally, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, there's a ton of opportunity. I should just get into oyster farming and just, you know, make a ton of money, just crush it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, where can people find you and read more about what you guys are working on? Um, our website, FLOysterTradingCo.com. You know, I'm, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to uh, reach me there. Matter of fact, that's where a lot of uh, the partnerships that we've developed have started, ironically enough. I mean... I don't have a whole lot of friends in Australia before that partnership, so uh, it had to be it had to be some sort of global medium. So yeah, yeah, those two ways: email jtnees at floystertradingco.com. Um, I'm like to uh, meet as many opportunities as possible, so uh, feel free. Awesome. awesome. Well, it was great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, Josh. Best of luck. Thank you all so much. Appreciate it. Check back every Tuesday for our latest episode. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe to ShipShape.pro. Pro, 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 pro.